reached the Entertainment Hotline, a chatter podcast. Listen as celebs dial in to chat with Anita Annabelle. Chatter.com.au and Media Week's Head of Entertainment. Dial 1 for movie stars. Dial 2 for streaming stars. Dial 3 for TV stars. Dial 4 for music stars. Or press 0 to speak with the star of the show herself, Anita. Hi, it's Mark Fennell from SBS's The Kingdom. Hello and welcome to this episode of the Entertainment Hotline. I am your host and head of entertainment at Media Week and Chatter, Anita. In today's episode, I spoke to Walkley award-winning journalist Mark Fennell. When Mark was just 19 years old, he quiet quit the Hillsong Church. Now, at the age of 37, his new film, The Kingdom, an SBS documentary about Pentecostal Christianity, sees his return to the world for the first time, investigating how Australia produced one of the world's most successful and scandal-plagued megachurches. But if this kingdom is crumbling, then who will take its place? Mark told me all about why and how he left, how people perceived the Pentecostal church from the outside and within, and what life was like growing up with demon eradication in his own lounge room. I'm not even joking. The Kingdom premieres on Thursday, 8th of June on SBS On Demand and 7.30pm on Sunday, 11th of June on SBS. Here's Mark Fennell. I have literally wanted to interview you for years and years and years and years because I've I've followed your career this entire time. I mean, I do very different journalism to what you do. I'm not a Walkley. Uh, we always our joke is someone hand me a Walkley when you write a married at first sight recap. Um, <laughs> I mean, they the funny thing is they just took away the category for best headline caption or hook. And I reckon that was the That's the best one. Exactly. It's the best one. Um, I mean, I'm glad they brought back things like, you know, international journalism and stuff like that. But the 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 caption hook one was like that was like that was the NT News's like I know reason to exist. There's no other category for entertainment and lifestyle, really. I think I think generally speaking, journalism awards in this country are pretty like I, I, I say this because I came from a world where I think lots of good journalism was done, but it just didn't fit into the categories where things got recognised. No. And I, and I, you know, I take more than a passing interest in that kind of stuff. And I I do think there's, put it this way, I, I think there is a, t- there is possibly a necessity for awards to represent the entirety of what gets made. Like I think, yeah, I think yeah, some, yeah. some parts of what gets made quite rightly wins awards. And I think that's awesome. Oh but my I God, also, totally. Yeah. But I also think there's other gaps in the space where like good, interesting work is being done, but because it doesn't fit into a certain hole, it doesn't get that kind of attention. I didn't even finish my degree. I mean, neither. You didn't? Yeah. I dropped out after eight weeks. Were you at UTS? So I did media arts production. I didn't do a journal. I would, I, I was like hanging around with film, film people. Um, talking about the arts. Oh, um, yes, Rosh. I do love the mise-en-scene. Mise-en-scene? Uh, yes, darling. Uh, no, I, yeah, I dropped out after eight weeks because um, I was doing community radio. I was doing it. I started an FBI. They taught me radio from scratch uh, pretty much. How and amazing. after that, I got um, approached by SBS, actually, and they were rebooting you remember David and Margaret? They used to do the, the movie Do show. I know David? Excuse I know, me, Margaret Pomerantz. Can I tell you something? I knew I'd made it in this industry when I got to go watch a screening of a film. I watched Emma and Margaret Pomerantz was there. So when they quit the SBS to go to the ABC, SBS rushed out a replacement show, a replacement of the movie show, and they recast it. And I got approached saying, oh, because I was doing movie reviews at um, FBI before I started at Triple J. And so my first job was the movie show. I did this little segment reviewing DVDs and I was, 18. <laughs> yeah, like that that was my job. It was like because they were re-releasing every cult movie ever made at that point. which was 2003, oh, 2004. Sick. And so they I did this little segment and uh I think we did the show for three, two, three years. I can't remember how long we ran it for, but um yeah, and so th- I was I was 18 when I did the audition and I was 19 the day we were unveiled to the press, and I just quit I quit uni within eight weeks. Yeah, because you got a job. Well, yeah, I mean it's funny, like I do, you know, I did that thing where like Ethnic parent. I'll defer, mum. It's fine. Um, but actually, in reality, I was just, I was never going back. It's funny, though. I have been asked on occasion to go back and talk at things like 
at like universities and afters and stuff like that. And I do just sort of have to remind them, like, you know, I quit. Right? You know, I didn't graduate. Yeah, like, and like, I may just encourage people to quit also. But uh-huh. that's the thing. Like, I'm so with you. Like, if I had to go to back to, to uni and say something, I'd be like, guys, you, you're not going to learn anything here that you're not going to learn on the job. I think you learn. I think you, I think one thing I do note, though, is you find your tribe. I think people that find their tribe at uni, and I think that might be, look, I, I'm saying this from outside, but mm. that might be its value. But the thing is, I found my tribe in at FBI. Like, the people, the people I met at FBI, we would go on to do radio together we would go on to make tv together like that you find your your group of people and there's been i've been lucky in that regard because there's been a few different things in my life where you find these little communities that you still work with so like hungry beast was a show i did for the abc i remember that yeah like that group of people we went off and made the feed that some of them went off and made like went on to be crucial parts of like the checkout on the abc so you do find these little and actually the the unit that the the made the kingdom and and the stuff i'm doing for sps that's born of the feed right so i do think you do find these tribes over time and you kind of coalesce and even with like podcasts and, and audio stuff I'm, I'm doing mostly with overseas companies like Audible and BBC and stuff like that, little communities just kind of go around. So it, I do think one thing I am slightly envious of at universities is people, the yeah, the tribe stuff, for film stuff. I had to kind of find that bit by bit later on. Uh, and I, it, it turned out fine. Like, I'm not complaining. I'm I mean, I think you're okay. <laughs> yeah, like we're doing all right. But at the same time, I think that is that would I I would observe that that is the value that, that's come from it. I feel like though you're still finding your feet in uni. Like I mm. I don't I know that the person that I was when I first started at uni the first time and left the first time. Um, I was 18 and I loved the party life and the social mm. life. I didn't I didn't you know it was about that finding my group there. But then I went back to uni at 30. So, ah, that's yeah. interesting. So it was yeah, a lot that of been younger way people. Different. It was so different, but I loved it. I was, I was still had a core group of friends. But then the thing is, they're just starting out in their careers. Where I've had like six careers before. Yeah, that. yeah, yeah. And I now think, I'm yeah. in this career. You know, I think the denigration of mature age students is, <laughs> is, um, is, uh, is unfair because I think sometimes people are better at doing uni when they've had a bit. Yeah, it's so much. I was so much better apart from the fact that I just left and walked out one day because I got a full time job. But yeah. it was the thing is like being at uni at that age. Um, I actually, I mean, look, I look a lot younger than I am. I know that, and so I think a lot you of do, people. Actually. Yeah, <laughs> Did I you do. don't register. <laughs> own that. I do. I do own that. It's my my nice ethnic uh, background. Anyway, let's talk about this show. Yeah, sure, sure. I actually uh, am. Very excited to talk to you about this. Great. For context, I grew up with a very, very religious abuela, my grandmother, Mm -hmm. Roman Catholic though. Ah, yes. With all the good iconography. Exactly. Thank you very much. And um, it was very, but we weren't religious at all. As you say in the documentary, you're a heathen. I probably am too, but not in the way that you are. Anyway, I don't know where I'm going with this. Let's just talk about the kingdom. For the record, heathen but not in the way you are is a bloody good title for something and you should use it. Thank you so much. <laughs> Do you want to work on something with me? All right, we'll, we'll figure it out. We'll just workshop um, it with Fitball. <laughs> we'll workshop with Fitball. Okay, so for anyone who doesn't know what the kingdom is, mm. give us the cliff notes. So um, most people will at some point have heard of the megachurch uh, Hillsong. Um, this was like a, you know, a a thing that started as like a small church in like the Hills district of Sydney that went on to become this massive, massive global thing. There were Hillsong churches all around the world, millions of Christians, whether they're Hillsongers or not sing Hillsong songs. Um, like I reckon that like it or not, Hillsong might be one of Australia's most important exports. Like it should go like Iron Ore, Hemsworth Brothers Hillsong. They've won Grammys. Like it's a whole thing right but it's also massively scandal plagued right mm. so there's been a you know downfall let's call them falls from grace for very high profile leaders um there's been accusations of um misappropriate of of you know poor use of funds accusations are you know speaking in general terms there's been accusations of um sexual impropriety at various different points uh it's not going great right mm. and we know that they're um their mem- their attendance and income people giving uh is in decline at the same time there's all of these other churches the mega churches that are around Australia that 
have in some cases lived in the shadow of Hillsong that are now sort of positioning themselves to inherit all of these people leaving um, leaving Hillsong. So, the, you know, the film is not an attack on faith, but what it is in is an examination of like, there's a turning point here, right? Where one one empire, one dynasty is is sort of in decline. All of these other churches are sort of working out how to inherit what comes next. But will history, How firstly, how did we get here? How did we get to the point that Australia, of all places, created this absolute like behemoth and centered around the world. How do we get here? What went wrong? And will, as these new churches prepare to take over, will history repeat? And I think, um, you know, Pentecostal Christianity was at some point, according to themselves, the fastest growing brand of Christianity in Australia, right? It was, it was you know, you'd have you know, prime ministers before Scott Morrison, you know, you had uh, John Howard rocking up at their conferences. This was big. This was big. And so how is it that we ended up creating that? But also what, what did cost did it come with? What did, the, you know, cause these things don't come for free, right? The big light shows that you kind of see in the news report, they don't come for free. And so what did it cost? What did it cost on people's lives and what draws people to it? So it's really like, you know, there's, there's plenty of docos about the, you know, Hillsong and its rise and fall. This is actually kind of a wider view of like, well, how is it that we built this and what went wrong? And more importantly, will it happen again as other churches stand to inherit the kingdom? So this is really interesting. Firstly, very, very, very high point here that it was made in Australia. Mm. I had no idea. I had no idea that Hillsong means hills, as in the hills, the hills district, district of Sydney. Yeah. yeah. And the song was the fact that it was because all of these songs, people are worshipping to these songs. That was their biggest export was the songs. And that's what got the people in, basically. Pretty much. So I was, when I was a kid, uh, I was I was raised, I was born into Pentecostal Christianity. We went to a whole bunch of churches, some of them big, some of them small. And then there was the church that would eventually become Hillsong, which at the time was called Christian Life Center. Yeah. And I have this photo and it's like the first thing you see in the in the trailer. Yeah, it's like, and I didn't realize the photo existed until quite recently. I was like, oh, I looked at it and went, oh, cool. It's me and a pedophile. Um, when I say, oh, cool, please don't quote that as, oh, cool. I was like, it was not like, oh, it was more I know like, what oh, you meant. Oh, it was a shock. Yeah, yeah it, was, it, was a it, was, it was a shock. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and so I remember reading it, just looking at it going, oh, wow, like this has been, I've been sort of in this. And I eventually left the church, I think when I was sort of 19, 20, but I was raised in it, right? So I've, I've always been around it. And I think one of the things that I wanted to do with this one is that when Pentecostal Christianity is normally covered, you kind of get two kind of streams of thought. One, which is stories from the outside looking in and, you know, examining the sex scandals, the money. These things are important, by the way. I think they're important to cover. But there's always but there's always like a slight sort of, I think, um, undercurrent, which is look at those freaks, right? And I think that... Uh, I think that's unfair to some degree because uh, most everybody deserves respect, but at the same time, it actually masks that there are real issues inside the church in terms of how people are being, you know, in some cases exploited, in some cases, um, some really serious things have happened. So I think sometimes those stories and the way they're told actually do a disservice to the people they most affect. Inverse, or on the other side of the occasion, inside the church, there is this, I think, a problem with like toxic positivity where no one, a lot of people don't feel like they can publicly talk about the things that do need work. Right. And so I felt like I was in this weird position where I'm outside of the world. I'm not like, I'm not entangled, but I know it well enough that I feel like I can walk the line between what, you know, like what are the issues that need addressing, but at the same time, it's not an attack on people's faith. Like my generalized attitude to faith of any kind, and this is me like non-believer saying my generalized attitude to faith is like, if you have something that helps you walk through the world, and helps you make sense of the world, and you don't hurt other people in the process, crucial caveat there, if you don't hurt other people in the process, then you do you. But I think I, I think most, a lot of Christians even would admit that I think the, the do no harm part uh, has been left wanting on occasion. So I think uh, I was like, I, I don't, it's not, the the purpose of the film is certainly not an attack on people's faith, but it is an examination of a model that was hugely successful that we've seen all around the world, but it did come at a, at a cost and there was damage along the way. And, and will that be repeated? 
Firstly, I completely agree with you. You saw me like I was nodding my head ferociously. I was like almost praying to you um, <laughs> myself um, when you said if somebody has something that they want to believe in and if that helps them, then more power to them as long as it doesn't hurt other people. Yeah. Completely with that. But I do want to know, how did you essentially, and, and forgive me if I say this in the wrong way, but how did you get out? I quiet quit. <laughs> well, before the, we knew the term, I I think one thing that's important to understand about Pentecostal Christianity is that it is a faith built on feeling, right? So all of the the music and the big lights and all of it, that is all designed to give you a sort of warm and fuzzy feeling like you're in a Coldplay concert. Like that's the whole vibe. And I realized after a while that I couldn't feel it. So you'd be around people. Like I grew up around people like speaking in tongues and, you know, having these amazing spiritual moments. And I, a few times over a period of time, I realized I was looking around. I was like, cool. I'm faking this. I don't feel anything. And at the same time, you had all these questions, like the questions you, you kind of graduate from the normal questions of like, why does God, who seems all powerful, let bad things happen? And then you go, where do we stand on this whole world created in seven days thing? Are we thinking that's an allegory or is that like a, just a straight up and down fact? Also, you know, like no sex before marriage. Yeah, we all that. Asking for a friend. You know, you, you, as a teenager, you start to have these questions and there was no shortage of questions, but there was a shortage of answers. But the biggest one was ultimately that I just didn't feel it. And, it, you know, you, you can only fake that stuff for so long, right? And so I, in the end, I... Actually, yeah, it was actually quite hard because I was like, I don't, I don't want to be faking this anymore. And I don't think these other people around me are faking. So that the conclusion I drew from that is like, well, maybe God does exist and he doesn't want to talk to me. And in that case, I'm out. And that was pretty much, yeah, it's actually quite tragic. That's sad really sad. It. Yeah. Because yes. then it feels like you're being like, why not you? Yeah. Hands up if you've been personally victimized by Regina George. I mean, God. Um, so look, I think I struggled with not like there's like a funny version of that and then there's a actually it's quite sad version of that and I one thing I did realize and there's a lot of me in the film uh which is not normal for me like if you watch stuff the British style or school to try to end racism or anything else I've I've done there's there's not like I'm in there but I'm not like it's not my story whereas this one it kind of is, is and that was story not, yeah and it wasn't the initial plan the initial plan was, um, you know, just explain early on, like, why, why should we follow Mark on this journey? And then let's get on with it. And then we sort of realized, and this team that's put together, we have a small team that the make docos, um, they've all known me for almost a decade. Right. And I realized as we started doing interviews that I was having these odd reactions. I was like getting to the end of the interviews and having these long, deep exhales going, I feel like I'm reliving childhood. And the team would look at me and going, are, are you? okay yeah are you all right and it occurred to all of us like none of them knew the entirety of my story how I got in how I came out so one day and literally it was the day before Christmas last year they sat me down in front of three cameras and the team and they just fired questions at me and I was like ask me anything I'm sufficiently burnt out to, and, and that's actually that that if you watch the film there's this kind of core interview that sits in the middle of it that's where it comes from yeah so I'm and I, it's interesting. I was quite burnt out at the end of last year. So I'd done stuff the British style. I'd done a bunch of podcast stuff that'll come out later this year. And, you know, full season mastermind. We shoot 85 episodes a year. Like I, I was pretty, and stuff the British style was really big. And then we immediately went into filming this. And so by the time we hit, uh, sort of the end of the year, I was like, I was wrecked. I think I put on like 10 kilos. I was like, blah. And so um, they were like, do you, do you just want to wait till next year so you're a bit clear? And I'm like, no, I am a good the most, time. Yeah, I'm the most honest I'm ever going to be. Do it now, but do not save that interview in the SBS archives because I do not want somebody pulling this bit out later. So I was like, <laughs> you will get proper rawness out of me now and no other time. So you do you. And that's kind of what became that kind of central through line in, in the film. Um, yeah, because I think what we set out to do was this simple question. is like, what is the future of the Pentecostal movement? But you can't tell that by our, without telling the story of the past, of how we got here. And I think it was an interesting experience of a film that we ended up ripping up and reshaping it like two, three times to end up with what we've got. And it's just a very 
you know, if people have seen me before on, and I've sort of grown up on TV, but it's a very different version, I think, of me that the most people probably won't have seen before. And but I don't I know how they're going to react. I, I, I'm glad you say that because I don't know how people are going to react. Like, I feel like normally if I put out a series, you know, whether it was, you know, framed or something like that, I've got a reasonable idea about how it lands now. This one, I'm like, I don't know. I just don't know how people react. You're very reflective in it. And I think that's the thing that kind of, that took me. I think that you were very reflective in it. You you know that there are bad things. You know that there are good things as well. That's like, you know, the good comes with the bad. I mean, there's probably a little bit more of a controversy surrounding it. But I think that it's so reflective of how you were brought up. Mm. And I think that's really great for people to see something different. The one thing that I really took away from, particularly when you were talking about the tar- being tarnished by being in the Hillsong Church or being in the Pentecostal Church, is that you couldn't even tell your wife that you went to church. <laughs> yeah. she. I mean, I, I'd forgotten, actually. I'd, I'd forgotten that that happened. And uh, we were at dinner with some friends and she's like, it was a couple of months, a couple of years ago. She's like, um, you used to lie to me about going to church. Like of all the stupid things to lie about. She's like, do you have any? And I, and I'd totally forgotten I did it. Uh, and she's, she's like, she's like, what is that? And at that point, uh, we were at dinner with a friend of mine who is actually in charge of the doco unit. And she's, a, and she was insistent that that idea stay in the film because she was always like, it's so revealing. It's so of, revealing. Of and of course, this is the thing. I feel like I'm reasonably self-aware, but there's a lot of things about this particular chapter of my life that I have no objectivity over. So like when I say, you know, I realized that I was describing this to Elise Pataka, the, the writer and director, that, um, I reckon I'm the only kid in my area that regularly had demons being chucked out of people in their living room on weeknights. Cause we would have these, like, I would, I remember sitting in my room listening to, cause you'd have these like Bible study or sort of like intercessory prayer groups that would meet in a house growing up and they, they do. And this is the exact quote, spiritual warfare. Right. And so you'd have fully, there was like demons of alcoholism being chucked out of, uh, out of people in our living room. And I remember it. But, and as I'm describing it, you're hearing this sort of booming rhythmic sound of, of people speaking in tongues through the walls. And I like, as I described this, I would look at everyone's face and go, Oh, that's weird, isn't it? That's not an, that's not how other people get raised. This is like, and I, so in my mind, I feel like uh, there's a lot of things that I'm like, Oh yeah, that's just normal. Oh wait, it's actually not normal for, for, for some people. So I, I think. It was an interesting experience in me sort of blurting out a lot of my my life to people and them going, okay, that bit, that bit has, has to be in the film. That's interesting. So, yeah, it's a strange combination of experiences. It's challenging to think that that happens. I mean, you know, it, I, I'm a little bit at loss for words, to be honest. <laughs> <laughs> it's, um, it is, it, it's quite astounding that this is stuff that you brought up, but I'm just, sorry. I'm a little, 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 oh wait, she broke me. He broke me. She broke me. He broke me. I just have, I'm just so shocked that that's what, but are your parents still in the church? Uh, no, mum is, I think. Yeah. No, definitely not dad, but mum, mum still is, but she doesn't, oh, look, I can't speak too much for mum, but I will say that, you know, she's made some choices about uh, healthier church environments for her. Um, and I think, um, yeah. And I, I look, I think I'm, you know, it's interesting. I had to go obviously tell mum that I was doing this at some point and be like, hi, there's a bunch of family photos and you're in there. And one thing I did say to her, and I would say to her, if anybody happens to be listening to this, who, who is a Christian, there's nothing in this film that I haven't heard said over and over again in hushed tones in like Bible study groups and stuff like that. These are issues that, you know, that are being talked about with, you know, coercive behaviors and uh, issues with, um, you know, volunteerism and, and kind of these are issues that have been talked about internally in quiet tones for the longest time. I don't think there's damage in talking about it out loud. So right? no one's talking about it out loud. Well, no, no, but nobody. I mean, actually, actually, I'm, I know some plenty of different churches do talk about this stuff openly. And I think in the wake of the scandals of Hillsong, certainly it's being talked about more openly within a place like Hillsong. You can see that in their public kind of communication. But it's been too long. Like one thing that really struck me is like some of the issues that were being talked about when we sat in front of sort of survivors of, of some of these churches, they were the same conversations I remember hearing when 
I was in it. I was like, mm-hmm. why hasn't this, this changed? Well, I mean, I guess it changed a lot because it became much bigger, but like, I, it felt like the conversation had become stymied at some point. Right. And I was like, okay, well, this is the problem of that kind of internal toxic positivity where you can, these things can be, end up being talked about in hushed tones, but they don't end up perhaps being tabled in a, in a public enough fashion to make change. And, and then you get, crisis, right? That, and then suddenly the only way things change when you have these huge crises, which is what's happening. There was opportunities along the way to change this culture. There was opportunities along the way to, you know, to, for people to still have their faith, but not, you know, feel like they're being manipulated for, for money or things. There was an opportunity along the way. And if we talked about it, I would argue that had it been talked about more openly throughout the intervening decades, we may not have come to this point where, you know, Hillsong's in, in crisis mode. Mm. Um, right. So, you know, like, I, again, like there'll be people listening to this that, that have no experience of church and probably think, Oh, it's all a cult. And that is, you know, I think what was this, ironically enough, I think what was more important to me with the kingdom is that actually Christians watch it because it's for them that it matters. It's like it's their life that's on the line. It's their, it's their community. Um, but I also wanted to make sure that if you'd never had any experience in the Pentecostal world, you could watch it and go, oh, I can't get why people are in this. It's not just, they're not just, you know, brainwashed people. There's actually something to it. So it was really about trying. And I think this is something that SBS kind of holds at its core, which is like SBS I've always maintained is better at identity, not pretending like we're all the same. Like we all have things that make us different. And if you take the time to understand it, you actually become stronger as a community. Like if mm. you understand what makes us different, you're not pretending like we're all one big happy family, single by R. It's like, actually, if you take the time to understand all the things that make us different, we become more cohesive. I, I kind of hold that as like an essential SBS ideal. And I think this was an opportunity to do that. It's like, we're not, no, I'm not trying to convert people who are not Christians and I'm not trying to denigrate people that are. I'm just like, let's just take a second to understand each other. Yeah, it's uh, the and understanding. from that we can get stronger. The cult thing was very interesting to me when you said that, when people are like, is this a cult? I mean, ignorance for me, I was like Hillsong is a cult. However, mm. watching, it's like Tony Robbins, right? It's the loud music. It's the light show. It's the you know, bringing in, mm. you know, people like Brian Houston, they were aspired to be like him when he first started this, started Hillsong. Yeah. So in terms of this kind of cult kind of mentality, when you were in it, did you, what was your reaction to people calling it a cult? It's funny. I A couple of years ago, I did a piece for the feed on, how the Pentecostal world was dealing with the same-sex marriage plebiscite. And I feel like I asked, I actually asked somebody that question, like how many times you've been told you're in a cult? And they just looked at me and their eyes went all the time. And it's funny because my memory of it, my memory, what was my memory of it? I remember actually, one thing I will say is when I was in it, we were always told that we were the underdogs. We're always told that like the rest of the world won't understand what we're doing here. What you're doing is countercultural. Um, and so you're always kind of told that even though at that point it was already in the ascendancy, it was already becoming really popular uh, and you know, they were packing out stadiums and stuff like that. There was always this mentality that what we're, what was being built in that environment was actually, um, uh, yeah, you were the underdog and other people wouldn't understand. And I think one thing that I have noticed that I think is a problem worth addressing is every time there's ever been a negative report of anything in the Pentecostal world, there is a tendency among some Christians to just go, well, that's an attack by the enemy, like the enemy being Satan. So it's always us and them. Yeah. And I think Christianity has an issue in the sense that it has an inbuilt mechanism to externalize fault. Mm-hmm. And, and, and happenstance, right? So anything bad that happens can very easily be explained away as this is an attack by the enemy. This is what's really going on. Equally, anything good that happens is always because, well, that's as God wills it, right? Indeed, a lot of the really lavish pastor lifestyles is defended and explained away on the idea, well, I mean, that's what God wanted. So I think there is a problem, I think, where the externalizing of every decision kind of stops humans from accepting consequences of actions. 
So I think, you know, and that, that's that's not limited to Pentecostal Christianity. I think that that idea is is across any faith where as, as long as there's an external force that you can kind of blame or thank things for, it kind of limits your culpability to some degree. I think that is, you know, has some problems. With has it. Some, some severe problems because you're not yeah. taking responsibility for A, your own actions or your own life. Yeah. And again, I'm I'm talking in a very, um, I'm talking in pretty broad brushstrokes here. Like within this world, there's lots of people that are, you know, execute themselves with a lot of, uh, a lot of, um, eth- um, ethics. And it's not like, I, you know, it's not all bad, nor is it all good. Uh, and I'm sort of at pains to point that out because I think sometimes when people talk about Pentecostal Christianity, what they're actually talking about is just Hillsong. Mm. Uh, and it is the most famous, most accessible part to get people to talk about, but I think it's okay to start the conversation there. It just can't end there because there's thousands of people that aren't, that are Pentecostals that aren't in Hillsong and they hate being tired with the same brush. They hate it so I can much. understand that though. I mean, for me, it's like there's no judgment coming from me. I'm just in shock because you, the things that I learned watching this documentary and then now talking to you, it's kind of, I don't understand how these things exist in this world and I don't know about it. It's been interesting at talking to people because I, I, with this film, I feel like I talk to two kinds of people, actually, no, three kinds of people. One, which is people like you for whom it's all kind of new. And I'm, and it's important that we make something that makes sense for you. Mm. Then there's people who are still in it and sort of grateful the ideas are being talked about. But the third category is the one I'm most intrigued about, which is all the people that I didn't realize had some connection to it and also did the thing I did, which is like, I just ran away when I was 23. I thought nobody would talk about it. And the number of people that have come out of the woodwork in the last couple of weeks as we've been promoting it, I've been like, oh, my, you know, I was a worship leader. I didn't think anyone would know. So I think I've, I didn't realize how many people had kind of done what I did, which is like kind of were raised in it or, or often joined when it was, you know, youth groups and then just went, I'm out and I've never really processed why I'm out. And I think it's been, uh, my suspicion is that when it does come out, I'll get a lot of people sliding into my DMs <laughs> with their, their stories. And, and already now, like just since the trailer has been out, I, you know, I every time I open up my, you know, my Instagram, there's like somebody sliding in with these, their life story. And I think I've got to be a bit careful with that because I, as much as I it, I am grateful for people who are comfortable enough to share their life story. It is quite a lot to take on. And um, I, I've just got to kind of create a few boundaries around that. Not because I don't care, not because I, but just because it, it's, it's a lot. It happened when I did the school that tried to end racism for the ABC. I got lots of people sharing their often quite traumatized stories about um, race and being racially abused. And I was like, you do become a bit of a lightning rod for some of these issues, of good and, and bad. And so I just, you know, there is this thing that happens when you make stuff about these issues that are sort of hidden but permeate society. You've got to go, okay, just like, and I'm not unique in that regard by any stretch of the imagination, but it's, yeah. it's just, But you just become the poster you, boy, don't you? You become the poster boy for it. Absolutely. Absolutely. And then... It, but I am curious, though, because we were talking about the good with the bad. We both mentioned that there's good with the bad with this. What have you learned from that? What have you taken into your adult life, like any values that you actually can go, this is actually really positive and I've now used that in my adult life. Is there anything that you've done that even though you quite yeah. did Yeah, yeah, yeah. And this is the thing. And and actually, it's actually my favourite part. It's actually my favourite part of the film, which is talking to survivors and um talking to survivors and people who come out the other side, just seeing the range of experiences people have. Right. Some people just are, are out. Some people, they've absolutely found their home and, 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 you know, they absolutely belong in these churches and, and they have a really happy ending. Um, but the ones I find most interesting are the ones for whom they come out the other end and they've, you know, they feel like they've been exploited or been manipulated and they look at their, like their faith, their beliefs, and there's like this rubble in front of them. And actually what they do is they pick the bits that they, they go, okay, this mm. is the bit I still believe. This can, this can go away. And there's a beautiful woman named Sue in the film. And she's like, it's actually made it simpler for her because now in all the rubble, she's like, she just measures every behavior against God. She's like, is this what God would do? No, then it's not, then I can let it go. And I think I'm really glad I heard her say that because I think what I did was like, I was just like, I'm out. 
and I just ran away. And now I look back on it and go, actually, there was a time there when, you know, some of these churches, some of these families in these churches fully saved my life. And my parents' marriage was disintegrating. I just sort of myself pseudo adopted into some of these church families. And I think what I learned from that is I can cherry pick which bits. I think there's a, there's an idea within Christianity, you have to take it all or nothing. And I don't believe that is healthy to do with a 2000 year old book. I just don't think it's, I don't think every aspect of it makes sense in 2023. But what I, but you know, whilst I'm not going to be picking up a Bible anytime soon, what I will say is I remember what it felt like when people, you know, enacted what they thought was, and you know, the grace of a, of an all loving God. And I remember that and I will cherry pick that and I will try and put that into my life. Mm. And I feel like there are things, you know, one thing that there's a, a lot of ideas that have always stuck on for me, which is like, what they kind of tell you is don't, like don't proselyte, like let your actions speak louder than your words. And there's a lot of people out there that have, you know, proselytized their faith, but actually your, your faith is much more impactful on people. If you live what you believe God wants you to do rather than just say it. And I think that stuff travels much further than the faith. Like I, I, I think you can cherry pick and it's also worth saying that's not unique to Christians, right? Anybody can treat each other with kindness, right? You can get that from watching three seasons of Ted Lasso. You know, I think we can cherry pick and we should, because I think it's critic. I think that's a human being critically evaluating the world around them and synthesizing the stuff that matters. I think what I've chosen to do is, is cherry pick the parts of it that I thought filled me up, made me, made me feel like I mattered and belonged and then abandon all the other parts that, that don't do that. And I actually think. That's the most encouraging thing, seeing people use their critical faculties and go, you know what, this aspect of this is worthwhile and it adds to the universe. That aspect, no, nah, leave that leave that in the past where it lives. And so I, th- I think that's what I was ch- learned from it, is that you can, you can construct a matrix of beliefs. It doesn't have to be dogmatic. Um, and I think that's worked f- for me anyway. I think it's I think it's an amazing thing to do. I think you should be able to to take from everywhere and cherry pick what what works for you and yeah. put those things into actions. I mean, I think that's a really clever way to do it and that's why I knew that you probably were still doing things that you had learned. There's no way that you couldn't have learned for 19 years of your life certain aspects of a way of living and mm. not put any of that into practice in totally. a positive way. Totally. I think I think what's more like what's more challenging is is working out how to identify which bits came from there. Like because it's been so long, you know. Like I, I I was I have forever been changed by that world, but it's but it was so much a part of how I was raised that I, I actually lack the vocabulary to identify. Like oh shit, that came from that thing that Peach said to me when I was eight. Whatever it is, you know what I mean. Like I, I think, I think that's it goes de- back far enough that I don't really know which parts I've inherited, um, which is w- weird for me because I I talk for a living and I'm yeah. normally like pretty good at like processing out loud. This stuff you're I'm like, very good at processing oh. out loud, whereas oh you God. just keep making me silent. I'm like, uh, uh, I'll shut up. <laughs> <laughs> no, 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 no. What I mean by that is I'm just quite taken with what you're saying. It's so fascinating. Oh, you're very kind. You don't, don't need to shut up. It. Keep talking. I, keep going. I don't keep think going, I deserve going. it, but you're very, very kind. <laughs> no, no, no. It's true. One thing I do want to talk about and cover, which I think is the most one of the most mind blowing things for me, mm. was the fact that they make so much money off these people. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It is literally about making money. This is a money making machine, and that was, I guess, the motives behind it. To me, that's where I think they fell short. And I think that that is such a concern. What it looks like from an outsider's perspective is they're preying on people by having the music, having the lights, having the the preachers, the people that you want to aspire to be, and then take my money. You would not be alone in that interpretation. I'm not saying it's wrong because it's not necessarily wrong. I think what is intri- what I've always found intriguing is the perceptions of money inside and outside are often quite different. So part of um, everything you're saying, like technically, is you know, I mean, it is correct that they make an enormous amount of money. Like it is just it is plainly correct, right? Um, but I think what one of the I guess one of the disconnects that happens is that 
within the world, I mean, Brian Houston really, he didn't invent the idea of prosperity gospel, but I do think he has refined, he, at his peak, he refined this idea. And it was an essential part of, I think, why Hillsong was popular was it sold an idea at its core, which is that God wants you to be prosperous. Like God wants you to have, and, and prosper is not just money. It's prosperity in your relationships, prosperity in your finances, prosperity. In, like it, it was an idea that was built in, um, into, into, I think Hillsong's brand of Christianity. And I think it's a big part of why people were attracted to it because it was this idea that God wanted you to, to have to prosper in life, not just in eternity, but in life. And I think the giving was, was sort of built into that cycle of thought. Um, mm. You know, the old phrase that was like, you are blessed so you can be a blessing. So when you have good things, you're, you're being blessed. So bless on, bless up. You know, like I think it, it was, it was a factor of a broader, um, it was, so it was an, um, it was an aspect of a broader philosophy around prosperity that, um, again, n- nothing I'm saying there, um, conflicts with what you're saying. They did make an enormous amount of money. There has been some really serious questions about how that money was spent and, you know, honorariums going to, to visiting preachers, business class flies, like there's big issues that I think are very serious and I don't want to denigrate them. But I think what I always find interesting is, is like the slight perception difference within and without, um, you know, like I rem- even, you know, attitudes to how they talk about, um, you know, they're, they're very specific with their language in Pentecostal churches. It's, it's always like, it's, giving or it's an offering it's it's you know think about where the emphasis is placed there it's placed on it's not we're asking we're taking it's it's you you're giving right and i think that is the area where i think language becomes coercive and you know there's a clip in the film and um of a preacher going pretty hard like pretty hard on on basically saying if you don't give 10% of your money to God, then then you're actually stealing, which is, by the way, not unique to his Hillsong and not unique to Pentecostal, Pentecostalism. It's, it is actually in the Bible. And that's the idea of tithing, right? You give 10% of your, your money to the, the to the kingdom. Um, that's not unique to Hillsong, but I think the emphasis placed on it and also the way, the way that that moment is arrived at, right? So there's a stunning predictability to the average Pentecostal service. And it goes like this. Super welcoming people at the front door, like su- like crazy welcoming people. Then you have your from your the three- car park. You guys, yeah, from said. the car park, yeah. yeah. And so then you enter, and you've got your three big ass bangers, right? They're big party songs. Then you go into your emotional songs, and that's where the emotional wave starts to get you. Then after that, there's what is, is nominally like the prayer announcement. So what they're actually saying is, you have the you're on this emotional high. That's when they talk about all the prayers that were answered this week, all the ways in which God was moving powerfully through people's lives, and then is the moment you ask for the offering. Because people are moved and they're they're emotional yeah. and they're more willing to give at that time because they're like, yeah, preach, I this is this happened to me. It is curated within an inch of its life. And anyone that says otherwise is kind I really do think kind of lying to themselves. It's kind of scary. Yeah. And I think, you know, churches need money, right? Like they, they don't come like that whole life. I mean, if you view it as if you view it just as a show, right? If it was just like a pop show, um, you're getting pretty you're paying, good bang for you. Get right, good bang for you your are, back, right? You're right. You're paying. You're paying money to go and see a show. Yeah, you are. You absolutely for the big ones, like your big ones. You absolutely are. So there's no question. And and you are also you you you're being inspired. And you your cups being filled up, right? So you could view it in those terms. But then also, I think there's a moment of sitting back, going, okay, so. This this timing, this planning of the exact moment and how you arrive at people. At what point do we? At what point do we think that's manipulative? And I think that's a, you know when you make a film like this, you're kind of starting a conversation that the audience has to finish. I mean, I feel like if there's a formula to get money, it feels quite it was manipulative. Amazing that the formula hadn't changed. I must say, like I hadn't, like I said, I hadn't been in it for years, and I went the first church I'd actually visited in the filming was actually in the US, and we didn't have cameras on it, and I'm kind of glad. That we didn't because I I had a flight fight or flight response, sat in the back row, worked out where the exits were, and I hadn't been there. And I was like, but the thing that after a couple of minutes of like sitting there in the back row, it, it was like, oh my God, this thing has not changed. 
in 20 years. It had like the structure is identical. I was like, wow. It's, and it's so consistent. Like there's little changes here and there from church to church, but you go to any of the big ones and the structure is pretty much the same. And I think it actually, I don't know if this is by design, but it, it, it actually makes it quite easy for people to essentially church shop, go from one to the other. And that's why I think you are, I mean, privately, the other churches will all admit that they are receiving disaffected Hillsongers. Like I, they will all kind of privately acknowledge they're getting people who have left Hillsong and looking for something different. So I think part of it is like, you know, it's like the there is a bit of a Macca's Hungry Jacks sort of thing of like, well, it's it's similar enough. You know, it's very easy to move because it's similar enough. Um, so, yeah, it, it it is an interesting time. And I think what's really telling is people's comfortability within the world of actually talking about it just varies pretty significantly. I think I've learned so much. I mean, I learned so much from the documentary. Everyone has to watch this documentary because it's just so so eye-opening. But I think also the one thing that I'm really, really wanting to know about is you keep saying that all these people are leaving Hillsong. Like, mm. do you know the number? Do you know how many people have left Hillsong? Um, what we, well, they have annual reports. And so I think the annual reports show that um, online uh, and in-person attendance dropped uh, in the in the hundreds of thousands uh, between sort of now I would caveat that by saying some of that I suspect is pandemic impacted as well so oh, just okay. bear that in mind yeah. um, but, but also revenue uh, I think in 2021 was down by like something in the vicinity of 12% I think the best most telling stat is this a whole bunch of their America churches their American churches either shut down completely or um, have gone gone their own way, left the Hillsong family. I think that's the really telling one um, because the numbers internally are a little bit harder to gauge because they mm-hmm. you only really get them from sort of annual reports. And I think the pandemic is also a contributing factor there, right, for big church events. But the, the, the number of churches that have, have literally either shut down completely in the US or or, or you know, gone independent, which I think is covered in the film, is yeah. I think quite notable. Um, so yes, we, there, there are quantifiable numbers. I always just caveat them pretty heavily, but they're all in the, in the, if you look, check out Hillsong's most recent reports, they're all in there. Plus actually Pentecostal Christianity itself has, has always been on the ascendancy, but in the last census, for the first time it shrunk, um, which that's never happened before. Um, again, pandemic could have an impact on that one as well. But also, don't you think it's the digital age? I think like people, particularly our generation and beyond below us, mm. are we, I, I feel like we have much more, um, we, we get so much more access to knowledge and we, we kind of can make our own informed decisions. So, but I also think, yeah, Pentecostal Christianity is, is really powered by the feeling in the room. I get what you mean. So if they're not able to be there, I think that has a really significant impact on like if you if you can't be in there the mood for the room then it's a bit like you could just be watching anybody. So look I, I we do like we do know both sort of anecdotally and based on their own reported numbers that there's been shrinkage. Yeah. Um, I'm just always wary about attributing it entirely to one factor if you know what I mean. Yeah, of course, of course. Is there anything that you learned now being an outsider? about the religion that you were like, oh, this is something that I had no idea from having been in it. Does that make sense? That's a good question. Um, <laughs> he says sorry. with a yawn. Sorry, yeah, no, no, no. I, I, <laughs> I apologise. Um, ooh, what have I learnt? I've learnt that um, there is not one size fits all. I think, I think one of the problems of Pentecostal Christianity is actually one of the biggest problems is actually just how it's perceived outside. Um, and I think um, it's perceived as though everything is Hillsong or everything is, is a cult. And I think actually in reality, everybody within that world and without, whether they're in or whether they're left, is on kind of their own journey. And not everyone's is the same. I think if we're going to actually kind of paint a picture, when you make a film like The Kingdom, what you're looking for is you're looking, you're not looking to kind of canvas the entire experience. What you're looking for is a handful of, a handful of experiences that illuminate the whole, right? So I often say when I make documentaries or podcasts, I'm looking for a, um, a small doorway into a big world. I'm looking for some 
kind of singular idea that I that an audience can buy into. And then when you open the door, you see something much bigger. And I think m- my biggest lesson is that um, within the kingdom is a multitude of experiences. You, it, it is not all good. It is not all bad. But you start to see the threads of where people have been have been hurt and casualties have, have you know been piling up. And those are fixable problems. Like I always, I, they, they are fixable problems without necessarily people, you know, losing their faith. They're fixable problems. But if you don't air them, if you don't talk about them openly, nothing changes. And I know that because the things being talked about now, the same things being talked about when I was a teenager. So there's not been, you know, I'm sure there has been some progress, but there's clearly not been enough. So it kind of, st- I would encourage people, to, particularly Christians, actually, to like, it's not ungodly to ask questions of leadership of how money is spent and it's not ungodly. In fact, it's actually a thing that moves you closer to what you think, you know, what, it, what that community can be. Um, so I think, uh, yeah, I, I think asking questions is, should be, I'd like to see the asking of questions and querying of, of church leadership to be, um, to be normalized. I also think churches need to become more open to talking openly um, you know, Hillsong obviously declined to be part of the documentary and I get it. They're in a world of pain at the moment. Um, and it's under new management, right? So it's not mm. like this. Um, but I think they can't put out press releases and say, oh, well, this doesn't represent the church we are today. They can't do, keep doing that if they're not going to talk about what's changed, right? They'll, they'll inevitably do that, right? They'll inevitably put out a press release or something saying, well, you know, these are all things that have been canvassed before, things that have happened in the past. We're a different church. Today. I, I, can predict it. I can predict it, right? But I'm like, cool. If that's true, come out and talk about it. Come out and explain how things have changed. And I think that is on them. You know, even though there's, there's new management and, and things like that, it is on them to come out and explain uh, what they've done to change themselves. Mm. And I await them doing that in, a, in an open fashion. Because I can't, like, you know, they're going to get, they get bounced by ACA on, in the car park and, um, you know, like they're going to get that. And I get that that puts them on the back foot. But also there's a whole bunch of people out there going, well, you say you've changed. Cool. Explain how. Tell us how. Um, and you need to explain how. You know, just t- sending your PR hound dogs is not the answer. You actually have to openly talk about it and be transparent, not just with your congregation, but with the world. If you want to change perception. It does make it feel like they're hiding so much when they're not coming out and saying something. Yeah. I, I mean, I, I, well, I, I, maybe they are, maybe they aren't. I don't know, but you can't tell until they talk. Exactly. Well, this has been so, so fascinating. I honestly, this documentary is insanely incredible and you are such a joy to speak to and so fascinating my goodness you're very kind i i don't deserve it but i will take it <laughs> well thank you so much for to spending this time with me because i've learned so much from you honestly oh good thanks for calling the entertainment hotline with anita annabelle you can find us on instagram at the entertainment underscore hotline pod or visit us at chatter.com.au The Entertainment Hotline with Anita Annabelle is a proud Chatter podcast.